This episode of the Black Gold Podcast is brought to you in part by the Black Gold Podcast Store, where you can get exclusive Black Gold Podcast merchandise. Here you can purchase the new My Story Matters design on a comfortable t-shirt or in a snug and warm hoodie. Also, you can purchase my new ebook on podcasting called The Podcast Jumpstart Guide to help you get from zero to your first episode teaching you the tools and resources that I've used to build a quality podcast on a low budget. To get your hands on this awesome merch at a discount, go to www.blackgoldpod.com and go to the menu and click on the Black Gold Podcast Store discount button to save 10% off your next order. Hello, listeners. On this show, I talk with everyday African-Americans who were able to transform their passions and struggles into their dreams. I'm your host, Moses Tillman Young, and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. In this episode, I interview William Adams. He is a technical advisor to Microsoft, and a founder of Microsoft Leap, an organization built to train women and underrepresented minorities in Microsoft to lead the next generation of software engineers on a global scale. In our conversation, William and I discuss his introduction to the world of computing, his experience working and living in Hyderabad, India for three years, and how he developed and patented the first collaborative computing software. We end our discussion talking about the next steps he's taking with Microsoft and expanding what he has done within India and the U.S. Virgin Islands to the entire Caribbean. Today with me on the Black Gold Podcast, I have William Adams. He is a technical advisor to Microsoft. Yeah. Technical advisor. I was like, what's that? We can get into that if you want. You told me before that you, the the co-founder of Leap, the Microsoft program, including women and underrepresented minorities into their training program. And how did that come about? And how were you the one who ended up spearheading that department of Microsoft? Okay. Let me roll back the clock a little bit just to give you a bit of my history so you understand what all this is about. So yeah, I've been in tech for a long time. I've been programming since I was about 12 years old. And and I'm a lot older than that now. So I had a, a company of my own with my brother for a number of years before I joined Microsoft in tech in Silicon Valley, you know, in California. And then I joined Microsoft in 1998. Most of that time, I've been devoted to shipping product, you know, developing. But along the way, you also build teams and whatnot. And I set out a goal for myself way back then, like 2000, to hire more women into my engineering team. Because even back then, we were light on women. And I had a lofty goal of having 12% of my team be uh, women. And that seems so pathetic now. But at that time, that was extraordinary. 
uh, because the norm was more like 9%. Roll forward a few years and I, I moved to India to help our establish our engineering um, group there. They were already going, but I helped train a bunch of people. So I'm just giving this history because I got a taste for, I want to help people become engineers because I think once I retire from an active life of engineering, I'm probably going to be a teacher just because I feel like that. I've felt like that my whole life. So in the last few years, in in 2015, I went to one of our engineering uh, leaders and said, what's one of your key business challenges? And he said, ah, this, you know, hiring diverse talent, right? And I thought, okay, well, let me see what's going on. Why, why are we not doing great at that? What can I possibly do to make it better, right? So it turns out I, I was left free reign to go and just make it better. And I was partnered with someone from HR, Human Resources. Her name is Chun, Chun Lu. And we just put together this program where we said, all right, well, what's the problem? What's the real problem? And the problem is partially it's because we just don't know where to look to find the talent. And partially it's because our engineering managers aren't used to talking to people that didn't come from the top 15 schools in the country, right? They know how to talk to someone from MIT, Stanford, Berkeley, Carnegie Mellon. They know that conversation because that's where they came from, right? When you say, now look, you're going to talk to this mom who has a CS degree but she stopped for seven years to raise the kids. You need to talk to her. It's like, ah, you know, you don't want to talk to someone who hasn't been coding in seven years, right? Or you want to talk to this person who was a bank manager and put themselves through a coding academy to learn how to do software. It's like, well, how do you talk to someone like that? Am I going to ask some coding questions on a whiteboard? You know, you, you have to look differently at them. So we created Leap to be able to say, all right, you need to find the people in different places and you need to give them a different opportunity. They don't have the internship like the college interns did. So you essentially need to create an internship for them. And we call this apprenticeship, right? And that's what Leap was. <clears throat> Altogether, it was a 16, it still is a 16 uh, week program where they have some in-classroom training up front and then they have 12 weeks of on-the-job interaction, just like a college intern would. And then that group can decide whether they want to hire them or uh, not hire them, right? So this is something that we started. We had some early success, enough success. That the management said, oh, keep doing that, you know, keep on, you know. And so we just did. And that was 2015 that we started. And now we're on what, uh, year six, we just celebrated this past uh, September, let's say, that was the beginning of it. So yeah, that's a program that I started and was very successful at Microsoft. It showed us how to do this. And now it's a federally accredited program. And it's something we really trumpet. And the rest of the industry is looking at us and saying, well, how do you do that? Okay, we want to do something like that too, right? So changing hearts and minds, that's that's how it was. Uh, so you started off when you were 12 years old, you said programming. Yep. Yeah. What was one of the first things that you did? Did you build games? Um, did you do any, anything practical, like spreadsheets, anything like that? <laughs> or... This was even before spreadsheets. 
keep in mind. This is 12 years old. What year was that? I don't even remember. I'll figure it out. So it's 1976. All right. Oh, okay. This is okay. even before the Apple II came out. <laughs> or is about it was about to come out. So VisiCalc, which was the earliest spreadsheet, didn't even exist. <laughs> you know, forget about word processes and all that, WordStar and all that. That came later. So in the very beginning, it's like, here you go, young. I had an uncle who had he was in the Navy and he had done stuff with computers and he had this computer that he was like, oh, I'm getting a new one. I'm, here you go. And he gave me this Commodore pet, you know, you can look it up. It's very, this, this is ancient technology, but it was a personal computer, right? And uh, to, just to give you a sense of how old this is, you know, nowadays you've got terabytes of disk space and stuff like that. I had a cassette deck, which was my storage, a physical audio cassette. That's how you stored programs, right? You type it in. Hopefully there's no bugs and then you save it to the cassette, <laughs> right? So in those early days, it was about um, just interacting with the machine. I did some graphic stuff like, oh, can I get a, Pong was out at that time. Could I recreate Pong, right? On my little computer. Could I draw some sine waves on the screen or, or the earliest games were like uh, um, tic-tac-toe, you know, or there was this very simple um, Dungeon Dragon sort of game or Guess the Number, you know, very basic. I mean, this thing didn't even have, let's see, it probably had like 32K of RAM, if that, <laughs> if that. I mean, you have that much in a light bulb <laughs> these days. So these are, this is very early. And I've taught myself how to program in uh, machine code and assembly language and basic that was it there's no classes there's no you know there's there's magazine that i got and that was about it so it's all self-taught that's incredible so you said that you and your brother started your own tech company and tech engineering thing what was the name of that and how did that go what did you learn about even interacting business-wise yeah so the first company was um well, my brother, if you ask him the story, so the first company we did was uh, installing sprinklers, sprinkler systems in houses, you know, to water your lawn. That was the very first thing. And I was labor. Oh, <laughs> he, was wow. the guy that did the, he did design and sales and I was labor, you know, we're just teenagers, right? Uh, so we went throughout our housing uh, complex and put in sprinkler systems. Um, but the first tech company was called Adamation. And you can actually still go on the, the internet today, automation.com. And now it's about some 3D printing stuff. But back then it, it wasn't. It was about just creating software and training people on computers and creating commercial software and stuff like that. The Adamation, A-D-A-M-A-T-I-O-N? A-D-A-M-A-T-I-O-N, yeah. So our, our name, Adam because we were thinking about automation and application and you know all this sort of stuff so automation so after you and your brother you guys started your sprinkler setting up company your animation was there anything that you would say that led you to being a person that microsoft would then consider 
to oh. spearhead their elite program. Oh, that was a long road and a long career and a lot of a lot of water under the bridge by the time I got to Microsoft in 2015. So I landed in Microsoft in uh, 1998. So Leap didn't come along until 2015. So I was already at the company for 20 years before Leap showed up. And the, the thing that, the way Microsoft works, a lot is based on just your credibility, what you've done, and what you choose to do. I chose to use leverage my political capital and my street cred, essentially, and my Rolodex at Microsoft to create this program. And it'll, it, seems, it, it seems simple and hard at the same time, because how did you do it? I just did it. I just decided we need this program. I'm going to create it. End of story. And most people would think, well, how, how, who gave you permission? It's like, no one gave me permission. I made permission. Now I had support, right? I had a boss who was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I had support. But even if they said, I don't know, I would have said, I'm doing this. <laughs> but they didn't. They were like, yeah, we trust you. We believe you'll do something good. You have the experience to do that. You seem enthusiastic about it. Knock yourself out, right? And that's pretty much how it, that's how I got in that position to be able to do it was just a combination of selecting. Now, it's almost the opposite. It's like, I had people tell me, well, if you do that, you know, you're, you're no longer an engineer. And I would just think, I've been programming since I was 12. How am I suddenly <laughs> not a software engineer because I choose to help people get jobs? <laughs> you know, it doesn't make sense. But this is what people say because it's off the beaten path of just being a programmer, right? It's like, oh, you're doing an HR thing. It's like, I don't know about you, engineering manager, but most of your time is spent hiring people. That's all I'm doing, <laughs> right? I'm no different than you. And I'm still writing code. So, you know. So you said that you spent three years in India. Yeah. Uh, what did you do there in terms of programming and also in terms of learning for yourself? Did you learn anything when you were there? Was there something oh, yeah. there that even maybe inspired you to do things further on in your career? Oh, yeah. So why did I go to India? So that starts with, I had at Microsoft done this thing called XML, which is like saying very equivalent to HTML. So I did this, this stuff related to XML. And then I got to a point where I said, all right, my next move is either to go further up this management chain or go learn how to be an educator. And I thought, at this point in my life, it's probably better to learn how to become an educator because that'll make me a more effective manager later on anyway, right? So I joined a group called Engineering Excellence. Uh, this is like 2004, 2005. And there, this was at a time when internet scale viruses and bugs were out there, you know, caused by us. And we needed to learn how to do better engineering as a company, right? We had to get off of our arrogant footing and onto a more like, all right, we have to be professional engineers. And so this group was created. So I joined this group and within a year, and so I'm teaching, 
right? I'm in the classroom, I'm teaching people how to be entry-level engineers, how to be um, senior engineers, how to be managers, how to be architects, how to be, you know, so I'm teaching all of this. And an opportunity came up to go and help our burgeoning India office become better. So I thought, okay, I want to go. <laughs> I just want to go. I went to India and China, and I was going to stay in China, but India said, no, we really want you to come help us. So I went to India, and my job was to establish this engineering excellence function in India. And by that, I mean train up all these people who are coming in and how to be engineers within Microsoft, right? So I did. I wrote a lot of code. I wrote a lot of curriculum. I taught in the classroom. And that's where I actually established the first version of what we now call LEAP. It was called LEAP. But its focus was on just all the college hires that were coming in 300 a summer, teaching them how to become engineers. So they came to me first for five weeks before they went into their teams, and I would train them up. So just imagine 300 college hires coming in, and they come to me and I train them, right? And then they go into their teams, and then they become productive engineers. I wrote a ton of code there because I was uh, writing a lot of samples for them to then learn and complete and find bugs and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So tons of different stuff from networking to graphics to UI frameworks to database stuff, whatever. What I learned was a different culture. I learned how to speak Hindi, the language. I learned how to write it. I learned the culture, you know, I learned a different speed of operation. And this actually stuck with me as a programming thing, because in the U.S., you drive down the street, follow the lights, follow the traffic signals, everything's pretty much okay, right? Every once in a while, someone doesn't follow the rules, there's an accident, it's pretty bad, and, you know, whatever. But we mostly follow the rules. In India, uh, at least in Hyderabad in 20, 2006, not a lot of traffic lights, and you have the cow, the person walking, the bus, the motorcycle, the car, all on the same roadbed, no sidewalks, going in different directions, different speeds, honking constantly, and it's like the exception is the rule. There's always something going wrong. So the fact that you would all stop at a stoplight would be the extraordinary thing, <laughs> right? Because it's more chaos. And this changes the way I think about programming. It's like, yeah, cloud computing, for example, is more about chaos. And every once in a while, things work correctly. But mostly, it's about chaos. So that's one thing I learned uh, in India. The biggest thing that I learned was, was about love and marriage. I met my wife in India, got married in India, and now we're here in the U.S., but learning how to love, learning about family and the importance of family. And it's, you know, I grew up in the U.S. and I grew up in Southern California. And yeah, I have a family, but family in India is a completely different ballgame. So I, I learned about family and the importance of family and, and obligation and stuff like that um, from India. That was a long answer, huh? <laughs> Perfect. So has there been anything else you would say in your life that 
you have learned from experiences and also anything that you have read, especially that has informed the way that you think? Oh, gee, yeah, there's just tons. So I'm I'm 56. So I have a lifetime of just learning, right? Everything, everything I've, I've experienced in the last 56 years. I would say for, as far as reading is concerned, when I was younger, high school age, I read a lot of various world religions. So I was grew up Christian. I read about various Hindu texts, think Buddhist texts, American spiritualists, you know. I read everything except the Quran until I met my wife. So just reading a lot, being immersed in various philosophies and understanding, oh, okay, well, across all of those philosophies and religions and whatnot, there's been a lot of thought that has, by humans before us, about what it means to exist and why we're here and how we should work and live with each other and all that. So reading all those texts has really shaped me, right? And then, of course, in the later years, it's a bunch of technical books about programming and and whatnot. And then I went through a number of years of just reading science fiction. And I also stumbled across various entities, like probably the strongest one being Nikola Tesla. And he's uh, not a lot of people know about Tesla other than the car company now, well, that has nothing to do with him. But the guy created AC power. (laughs) <laughs> you know, the thing that runs our planet. But he was the guy who came up with that. And his mind was just so, and millions of other things like turbines and generators and all sorts of stuff. But his mind was just so interesting because he was, he would invent stuff within his head and complete with working it out, what the design was, testing it, everything in his head, right? And then it would, then he'd write it down and they would implement it. But it's like, that just really shaped me. It's like, if he can do that, <laughs> what can I do, right? Let me, let me do my big thing. So yeah, that's some of the, the influences. Has there been anyone that you can say uh, specifically mentored you or taught you something about programming, engineering, that you can definitely say that they were the one that taught this to you and you apply it in your life consistently? Not really, because most of the time I've been self-taught and at the top of my game and at the top of, and perhaps it sounds like bragging, but I've oftentimes been the innovator. So I've more often than not had people come to me to learn rather than me learning from them. I I can't, I actually can't think of a single programming mentor that I've had. And just keep in mind that I had my own company back in the day where I was the VP of engineering and we were inventing things back then. I even have a couple of patents for stuff that we do today. One patent is a collaborative computing. So the fact that you can bring up a Google Docs or Word doc and two people can edit at the same time. That's something that I worked on like 30 years ago and got a patent for. And all the subsequent 
later refers to that patent. <laughs> so 30 some odd years ago, that's what I was doing. And people were looking at that and going, well, how do you do that? I've never been taught programming, you know, code. I've, I've only attended one class. Yes, one class to learn. No, that's not true. Two classes. I've attended two classes in my life on programming. One was about learning Fortran, the Fortran programming language, at Rockwell International in Anaheim, California. There was a, a program we had to interact with those engineers. So that's one uh, situation. The other was in college, I learned Pascal, Pascal programming language. But picking up C, C++, Objective-C, C-sharp, JavaScript, all the rest, that's, that's all been on my own. But what I have learned from observing other programmers is how to do that and reading a lot of code. So even if I don't get mentored by another programmer, I read just hundreds of project codes all the time. And that's how I learned, right? So even if Fabrice Ballard, the guy who created, you know, a million awesome things, he, I've never met the guy. But I read his code, and that's a form of teaching me, right? That's what I do all the time. If you're not that person, then it is good to go to a class and be around other people so that you can bounce ideas off each other and bolster each other. And that's how you learn, right? I mean, that's more, more usual, I think. So in coming up with the computer collaboration patent what was that for was it for anything specific that you had in mind or was it just an idea of like oh my brother could be over in south carolina i could be here in california and we could no it was very specific so we had this we had packaged product you know we don't even sell packaged products anymore but we had this product it was called who's calling and it was about uh, tracking Lead tracking. So it's like I put all your phone numbers in there. I had a modem that could dial so I could pick a phone number and call, right? And then we had this other thing called What's Happening, which is a, a calendaring app, you know, just like Outlook, right? Just before all of that, just imagine 1990, <laughs> having an office suite that has calendar, phone calling, and whatnot. And one of the things we created was this thing called Livewire. And Livewire allowed you to be sitting, it was created for an office situation, a real estate company specifically, where at the reception desk, there'd be someone answering the phone. And then back in the back, there's all the agents, right? So the receptionist would get the call and then they'd be live chatting with the agent in the back. So-and-so's on the line, do you want to talk to them, right? So it was created for that. So if you think of today, we have, and this is, yeah, around 1990, 1991. If you think today about, I don't know, Instagram, WhatsApp, Twitter, all these things, right? They're all just text and it goes out to a bunch of people. It was that kind of stuff, but in 1990, right? So it was invented for that. And then that turned into just more. Part of it was just exploration. Me just saying, what else can I do with this? Uh, and part of it was invention. It's like solving a hard problem. Like, how do you do a distributed 
well, the, the crux of it is called distributed lock. How do you do a distributed thing to say they're first, you're second, they're third? That's the crux of how you do those kind of applications. And I just cracked it because I was, I was just into that kind of problem solving, right? There you go. In 1990, I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, so, so in 1990, just imagine if we had WhatsApp. Not Yeah, if we had WhatsApp in 1990, <laughs> right? This is the kind of stuff that was. Wow, that's incredible. But that was way before the internet. So it's, it, it was not even, it was on local area networks. We couldn't even do it on the internet because it didn't really, it existed, but it wasn't what it is today. Did you try to apply it to the internet once it came out in terms of being a standard? No. Well, one thing that we did was we took that technology and ultimately sold it or sold a license for it to a company called Taligent which was a combination of Apple and IBM working on this operating system for a while. And what we did was we implemented that feature into the operating system such that every application that you wrote on that, app, on that platform had this collaboration capability built in. So if you created a paint program, it would automatically be collaborative just by the design of the operating system and this feature that we put in there. Taligent didn't go anywhere. So, you know, it's, it's only in the annals of time at this point. And then by the time, so I did that. And then one thing leads to another, this and that. And then I'm at Microsoft, right? So I didn't pursue it because I wasn't, I mean, we did lots of different products at that time. I needed to feed my family. <laughs> so I had to go get a job. <laughs> Right. So, yeah, all that got left behind. And so now I look back on it now and I look at where we are today and it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we did that a long time ago. Very interesting. Right. But today's problem of hiring women and minorities is even harder. <laughs> so I'm happy to focus on that. Well, how does one go about submitting a patent or having an idea that is original and can be patented because it seems as if if you have an idea about something someone has already thought about it or if you have an idea about something it is already patented and other people are like in the same process along with you and they have more resources behind them to push their goals forward how do you get something officially patented with your name on it so then that way you and your intellectual property are protected? Well, it's it's a struggle for all those things that you just said. It's like very big players are in the patent arena and the likes of Apple, Microsoft, IBM, you know, we use patents in various ways, mostly as defensive tactics and negotiation that we can use. And we get some money from licensing patents to other people Uh, So there's some revenue stream, but mostly it's a defensive move. You have patents, they have patents. You want to work on something, so you agree to put your patents aside so you can work on the thing, right? That's the big players. The little guy is an interesting one because this this exact question came up in some forum I was in recently. And my advice is patents and your ability to earn money off of patents is really 
it's a calculated investment. To get a patent, you're going to hire a patent lawyer. You're not going to do it yourself, right? Uh, language has to be a certain way. You have to know the system, when to file, all these sorts of things. First thing you're going to do is you've got your brilliant idea. You're going to find yourself a patent lawyer and you're going to talk to them about your idea. And they're going to give you an assessment as to whether they think you should even bother or not, right? You are not going to go search for prior art because then your patent is tainted. So you're going to talk to a, a patent lawyer, attorney, and let them, you know, they have ways of doing prior art searches and all that sort of stuff. So you're going to get a lawyer. If you think that you can't afford to pay a patent attorney, then that's probably the first indication that you probably shouldn't try to go for a patent, right? It's not a huge amount of money, but it is some money. And it's kind of a barrier of entry, I suppose. Um, but that's really the best way to start. Once you get that patent lawyer, they will just help you through the process itself. But you're right in that when you think of, well, what's patentable? My brilliant idea that I just, just came to me when I was sitting at the breakfast table. It's like, yeah, you and probably a hundred other people, <laughs> you know, but you have to, you, but sometimes you have that insight where you're just like, you're cracking on some problem for a long time. You're just cracking on it. And then it just, the light bulb goes on. You go, ah, in all my experiences, it's never been done this way, right? And you do the thing, you implement it, whatever the idea is. And you go, yeah, I have never seen this before. That's when you go get the patent, right? And when you get the patent, why are you getting it? Are you, now you got to try to make money, right? It's like, just because you have a patent doesn't mean you're going to make money. You have to think about, well, what am I going to do with this patent? Either I'm going to go into production and I'm going to use this to defend against knockoffs. Or I'm simply going to use this patent as a way to try to license to other people. Or I'm going to use this patent because I want my company to get bought out. And this is part of my assets, right? Patents are a good asset. It's like this patent is worth $50 million, you know. Therefore, my company's worth $100 million. So those are the things you think about. It's like, yeah, okay, you got the patents. How are you going to monetize it, right? And the path monetization isn't always through production. Sometimes the path is just licensing or some other thing, right? Uh, depends on what you're trying to do, ultimately. So like that. Okay. And so if someone, for example, say, would have an idea for a, a solar battery charger, yeah. Would they then have to create the actual physical charger or would they only have to submit their plans in order for it to be patentable? Yeah, you don't have to actually create the thing. You can just submit plans, okay. right? Like I could patent the idea, not just an idea. It has to be more than just an idea. I could patent using uh, chlorophyll as a rocket fuel. And I've got a method for doing that. Now, the patent has to spell out what the method is. You can't just patent an idea. Like, I patent the idea of, you know, colonizing Venus. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't patent an idea. It's got to be a thing, right? But I don't have to prove that I can make this chlorophyll-based rocket fuel, right? I just have to show that I've got a methodology for doing it. Otherwise, it's just an idea, and you can't just patent random ideas. 
So yeah, you don't have to actually have an implementation. Software gets tricky though, because it's like, well, but you're patenting an algorithm. You probably had to implement the algorithm to get the patent. So, you know, that is kind of real, but mostly you don't. And so it's anything. So in order to submit a patent, you need to have, it's your, like your, the plans for your device or the, the steps to your method. And then right, after the process that, and methodology, right? Yeah. And then after that, you need to go to your patent lawyer, see what they say about the process and what they can do to make sure everything goes smoothly. And right. then you, they walk you through the steps of what you need to do next. Yeah, and take the cap you're wearing, for example. Somebody, somewhere along the line, got the bright idea that if you put a sweat-absorbent band in the front, that would be better than if you didn't. Yeah. So they probably patented that. Somebody probably patented the Velcro clasp on the back of the cap because it makes it fit multiple heads, right? There you go, (laughs) right? We had caps before that. They were probably elastic-based instead of Velcro-based. Then someone said, Velcro, right? And they got a patent. (laughs) So in terms of your life, you said it was three years in India. You started the Salib program 2006 in India, 2015 here. Right. And and you said it's based in, in Seattle. Yeah. And since the pandemic, has anything changed for you in terms of how you either interact with your coworkers or how you even go about designing, thinking about creating, coding any new projects and ideas? Has anything changed for you in such a way that you had to reevaluate what you were doing? Yeah, so off the off the leap thing, so I'm not running Leap anymore. It's run by a completely different team and they're in HR and all that sort of stuff. My current role is to make Azure, which is one of the products in our company, just a better place in terms of how the work environment is and whatnot. And that includes everything from how we hire people, how we mentor them, how we train them, how we satisfy their entrepreneurial desires, right? When we were all physically together, we may have thought of certain ways like, oh, we're going to run this class and we'll have everyone who comes in the door, we'll go through this and we'll do that. Very physical base. And you don't realize how much you're doing that until you're like, nothing's physical now. <laughs> right. And it's changed us instantly. We said, okay, the onboarding stuff we we're going to do, we're not going to do that because that was based on people being there physically. Right. It changed my team dynamics. We we switched instantly to having a daily get together. So every day, 10:30 a.m., we get together and we just chat. Right? It's not a status meeting, although we might do that every once in a while. Mostly it's just let's connect, right? Let's make sure we're still human. Because otherwise, when you're only on calls that are about status of projects, it becomes very mechanical. And you may begin to feel like, well, why am I interacting with this set of people? I could be doing anything anywhere because it's all just on a computer, right? I don't even know if you're a robot, (laughs) right? You could be some deep fake of some 
like a cat sitting somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. So we connect personally and we share stories and we, you know, through the whole George Floyd thing and riots and, and injustices and, and Trumpism and all the rest, we're talking to each other. And we found that that's what holds us together. We want to work together regardless of what we're doing. Right. So the mission can change. It's like, I still want to work with you. So that's changed. How we get technical work done has changed. It's a little bit more structured. You need more of the like design documents and things like that because you're not serendipitously walking down the highway, ducking into a conference room, writing on a whiteboard after some meeting. That doesn't exist, right? So you have to be a little bit more mindful about how you get together with people that you're going to collaborate with, right? So those kinds of things have uh, changed. How would you say the onboarding process has been virtually versus being in person with people in terms of newcomers, people who were coding maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, but now you brought them into the LEAP program and they're starting again. Has there been a difference? Have you seen a difference in terms of the people who have been in person with you previously before the pandemic and now doing this, all of the onboarding and training virtually? And has there been any difference, like emotionally, in terms of their mental state? Have you seen yeah. any any changes at all? Yeah. Well, what I'm doing is not just Leap. It's all of um, Azure. Azure is a many thousands of people, multi-billion dollar uh, thing. And the, the way that people come in, there are people now who've been in the company for at least a year who've never met anyone on their team, right? And that's quite different from before and it it makes it harder i think to transfer certain kinds of knowledge because in the past someone would come in and on their first day the first thing you do is you walk them around the hall and you introduce them to everybody right so they're making physical connections with people so then they start their coding and they have a question they walk down the hall they know who to talk to it's instantaneous right the whole virtual thing, it's a lot harder. It's like, if you want to pop in on someone, you really have to schedule it, right? It's, it's hard to just, oh, I, I'm on Teams. I'm just going to, you know, fire off a message to someone. And it's like, people don't want to be interrupted like that. You have to schedule it. So I think that disrupts the serendipity discovery um, process, right? It's not as easy. And then the bigger thing, and, and what we may not have realized as much when we were all together is a lot of, well, you do realize it, a lot of culture is transferred by that same mechanisms. You're standing by the water cooler. You're chatting about stuff. You're learning stuff that's not documented. You're learning the history of the group. You're learning who's who in the office, you know. Now you don't have all that. So how you connect to people, you have to go out of your way to try to, uh, augment that part of the the interactions because if you don't then people again there's they're sitting at home and they're like okay i'm doing my code but i'm why who am i i'm in a box there's somebody out there who's my boss that evaluates this but how they don't even know me (laughs) i've never been to lunch with them they don't even know that i 
like puppies, <laughs> you know? So I think the dynamics have changed in that way. And it's forcing us all to be a little bit more, to go out of our way to do what came for free before, right? And some people thrive in that. And some people are like, I just need to be in an office. This is killing me, right? So it's like that. So in terms of recruiting people for Azure, you went to, was the U.S. Virgin Islands for a while? Yeah, well, let me tell you the the Virgin Islands thing, and I'll tell you another thing that I'm doing on my own. So we went to the the U.S. Virgin Islands because I just had this uh, epiphany, if you will, which was, okay, we're trying to get, we're trying to be more inclusive. And our company mission, and it says it on every employee's badge, is to empower every person on the planet, every person in every organization on the planet to achieve more, right? That's a pretty tall order, you know, but we're a big company. And in my mind, I just think, well, you can't really achieve such a mission if you don't have uh, tremendous empathy for a broad set of populations around the planet, right? Including our own local populations. And if we're struggling to get more black, brown, and female representation, we're not going to be able to achieve that mission. So I just looked and it's like, where are we getting people? Okay, we're in Atlanta, you know, we've opened up offices in Africa. We're in Latin America. We're, we're all over the place. We're not in the Caribbean. Um, and the Caribbean all up, when you look, depending on how you want to count, eh, let's say that's 40 million people, right? It's hard to, again, like with Africa, it was 1.2 billion people and we had no engineering there. It's like, okay, that seems like a glaring neglect. So the Caribbean, I just look at it as another pocket where it's like, hey, what about this set of people? I mean, my badge says everyone on the planet. It doesn't say everyone except Caribbeans. <laughs> it says everyone. So I just thought, okay, we need to, we need to get in the Caribbean. Let's use the same playbook we used to get into Africa and India and China, which is about how you do community engagement. You know, you go in, you say, hey, what do you need? What do you want? Uh, you don't go in and just say, give me your best people. I'm going to take them out of your community, leaving you with nothing. That's kind of a, that's an old colonialist attitude, right? I'm going to take your riches and leave you with nothing. So my approach is, no, go in there with our tools and say, I got this bag of tools. How can I help you achieve what you want to achieve? What can we do mutually together that will benefit both of us? That's my approach. So we're in the Caribbean, U.S. Virgin Islands specifically, and we're working with the governor, the local uh, university, the local infrastructure, because they have broadband fiber optic network there in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we're just working on a number of initiatives that are going to allow them to get the digital sovereignty that they want and allow us to have people work on the things that we want, advancing our uh, technologies, right? So that's how it is. So how long were you there for? We did a, we did a tech summit back in June 
where, and that was a two week long thing where we did, we sat with the governor and all of his departments and we spent a week talking about each department, what the current challenges were, how technology might be able to help solve their problems, right? Not trying to sell Microsoft solutions, but I'm Microsoft. So we did that. And at the same time, we held a hackathon at the university where we taught statistics and various other tools. And then we hacked on some of the the solutions from what we heard in the first week, right? Using local talent, because we're trying to develop the local talent, right? So we're there for two weeks. At this point, we will keep going back. We have a continuous slate of things that we're working on with them. And we'll just keep going back, right? Eventually, we'll actually land full-time employees there. Groups will be wanting to work on whatever. And as we do this, we find more and more people within the company who are like, I came from the Caribbean. <laughs> I want to go back. I didn't know we had a, we're going to have an office there. It's like, yeah, we can. There's no reason. And the company says you can work remote. So let's get to it, right? Yeah. So in terms of the the future of the of the program of your of your program, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts in terms of different places to go next? Do you want to go to somewhere in in Asia, a rural country in Europe? Uh, what are your next thoughts, next steps? Well, it's it's not about the program, it's about what Microsoft is doing, what I'm doing and it's Microsoft is wanting to be in a lot of different places, right? Because we realize things like, I'm sitting in the Seattle area right now, and like the Silicon Valley area, it's just too expensive to live here. And you can't, uh, you can no longer follow the playbook that says, I'm going to go all over the place and bring everyone here, right? It's like, it's too expensive. Not everyone wants to live here, (laughs) right? Especially if you came from a different country. It's like, no, I'd, I'd rather stay in my local community. So in general, we're trying to figure out how to get into more communities, right? Atlanta, you see that. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're opening an office in Atlanta, and it's going to be big. And there's a couple of reasons for that, but one of them is certainly, well, we've heard loud and clear from people, they don't want to move to Seattle, so I guess we have to go to where they are, right? But there's Atlanta, we're already doing stuff in Virginia, we're already doing stuff in Texas, I'm fiddling about in the Caribbean. We are already all over the place. Southeast Asia is is up and coming as a burgeoning area. And even over on the other side, you know, Australia and that whole region, there's just talent everywhere, right? So in general, Microsoft wants to be wherever talent is. But we don't we're not going to be able to create giant development centers everywhere, right? We have to get good at the model where you're creating much smaller entities, but a lot more of them, right? Uh, And it's even more than just remote work because that assumes a central hub where everything flows out from. We have to get good at distributed work, right? Where, those guys over there are working fairly independently. And yeah, they're working with these guys over here too, but all three of these guys together, they're not controlled by this center. They're controlled by themselves. 
and they can each grow, right? Uh, that's what we're trying to get good at is how do we how do we grow talent and utilize talent around the world without being so centrally controlled, right? Yeah. So that's the that's the future is exploring stuff like that. And I keep saying beyond leap because it's not just leap is focused specifically on a certain demographic of of people. But it's it's all levels of people and all different kinds of people that we're trying to do this for in general, right? Leap was just one specific tool. Yeah. And so it's the idea of expanding a network. So then you have, as you said, like little hubs in different spots rather than like larger, extreme gargantuan hubs in right. these different areas. So then that way people can work faster, they can do what they want to do, you know, work remotely, work from home. And yep. so then that way it's it's a win-win for Microsoft, win-win. Yeah. yeah, and I just recognize that if we don't do this, this is what our competitors are doing already. So people yeah. just vote with their feet. It's like, okay, you guys are trying to force us into those offices again. I don't want that. So I guess I'm going to go over here because they're not forcing me to do that, <laughs> right? Our whole industry is doing this. So it's you either got to get ahead of it or we become irrelevant, right? Yeah. Well, William, this has been a wonderful conversation. I have one more question for you. And okay. that is, if you had the ability to send the worldwide text, what would your message be? Send a text message to the entire world? Yes. Oh, that's easy. Love each other why would that be a message because anything else is too much detail i mean it's uh, i have found that if we care for each other and love each other humanity is just going to be better right so that's it it's just simple right it's like it it's what it means to be human i think is to be in community and love and support fellow humans i mean we're still competitive but if we want to if we have a hope of solving problems like global warming or warfare or food shortages or water you know all these things you have to have empathy and you can have that if you love each other you should have empathy and that will lead to solutions that are less about individuals and what can i get out of it and all that if you love each other it's like yeah i can get this but what about you what do you get out of it let me think about you because i love you so i want you to be okay too right so i think by having that message if people follow it <laughs> then i think we end up in a better place if you send that message and it was like whatever then okay I, I waste my message but whatever message could you send other than hey everybody come over here at five o'clock and i'll give you a hundred dollars <laughs> you know so love each other that's the message i would i would send everybody what's a beautiful message yeah there you go yeah well thank you william for your time it's been a pleasure all right you're welcome thank you for listening to this episode of the black gold podcast Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the show on Instagram at the Black Gold Pod in order to be updated about new episodes each week. In order to listen to incredible and inspiring stories. 
please go to the Black Gold Podcast website and make a donation so the stories of these incredible and amazing people will be waiting for you each and every week so that you may be inspired and become an inspiration to someone else.